Driving that coach. 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 All right, we're live. Cool. And welcome to another edition of Dropping That Culture with J.D. and A.J. I'm J.D. I'm A.J. All right. And this is our actual first video of uh, Dropping That Culture with J.D. and A.J. Uh, just in time for this uh, quarantine blues that everybody's going through right now. Hey, but it ain't going to stop dropping that culture. Fucking right, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm happy now that we actually see each other, you know what I'm saying, and the people can actually see how we interact. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, well, on last time, because we had to do our sound barrier with our first run with the dual microphones, we still couldn't see each other. You're leaning off to the side, trying to talk around the sound barrier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, now, uh, as the uh, viewers are watching this right now, we're in uh, basically two different places. I'm at my home in L.A. County, and A.J. is, is at his home in Orange County. Yep. So, uh, yeah, we're not, we're not that far apart, but at the same time, it's like almost two different worlds right now. That's because Los Angeles County versus Orange County. Yeah. But it doesn't matter. We're all locked down. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, but yeah, like freaking, actually, funny enough, uh, they reported two cases actually out here in Whittier. Yeah. Uh, and um, they actually have part of the Washington Boulevard, like, uh, cart uh, cordoned off and quarantined and shit. Uh, got a tent and everything. Yeah, it's, it's crazy out here, man. Yeah, doing the drive-through test. I heard they they had a couple of LAPD detect or uh, LAPD guys that were tested positive. And, yeah. yeah. I mean, you end up with a bunch more positives, but just because you got positive, it doesn't mean any of it's necessarily life-threatening. So it's just what we all yes, that is true. Yeah, that is true. Uh, but uh, you know what? This, that, that's the real life right now, but like, you know what? Let's not focus on that. Let's focus yeah, on the fun. Yeah, we'll focus on the fun. We're here for the show. We're here to have fun. We're here to uh, entertain you people out there. And uh, like I said, I'm very happy this is the first time you actually get to see us. Because yeah. um, of the fact, this is, yeah, this is how we look. Yay. JJ, unfortunately, is without a cigar. I, I'm with one today. I have this wonderful uh, 30-something-year-old Alhambra uh, from Manila, um, yeah. which my dad got me. I didn't even know they made cigars in the Philippines, but apparently at some point in time they did. They may still make them now. It's not bad. It's a good little smoke. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, actually, I do have cigars, but uh, like, I'm, like I said, I'm inside right now. Uh, yeah. I'll probably going to have them later. Yeah. Uh, Landlady when... wouldn't appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> Uh, but like I said, let's go ahead and pop into it. Now, first off, this is the first time we actually see it online. Uh, our first live edition of Seven Degrees of Eddie Murphy, which is where I can connect any major American film star to the great Eddie Murphy uh, within seven movies. And I try to do it every time off of sheer memory. I don't try to go to the internet. If I do have to go to the internet, I will state so, et cetera, et cetera. But well, you, more often than not, I usually do without it. You can't hide now. <laughs> no, I can't have it at all. I really can't. <laughs> See you. Okay, so, all right, so uh, what names you got for me today, Adrian? Whoa, 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 whoa. You didn't do the intro song. Oh, yeah, that's right. All right. The folks want to see it. Okay. <laughs> <clears throat> <laughs> 
Rachel McAdams. Okay. Rachel McAdams? Yeah. I'm trying to do a different route, man. Because I was thinking, you know what? You can get there quick. Actually, I got I got, I got into one. Uh, Rachel McAdams was in The Notebook with James Garner. James Garner was in The Distinguished Gentleman with Eddie Murphy. That was quicker than I thought you were going to go. I thought, I thought you were going to take Rachel McAdams over to uh, Robert Downey. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Nah. I like, as soon as you said The Notebook, I was like, oh, yeah, The Notebook. Thank you, AJ. We were having an offline discussion about that earlier. I saw it for the first time last night, so. It's such a beautiful movie. Oh my God, it's awesome. grown men cry. I was in a room full of Marines that cried watching this movie. <laughs> and understandably so. It is a, it is an absolute, just heart wrencher. Whatever. Yeah, it just, just takes the heart and just rips the motherfucker out, man. It's, it's awful, but beautiful. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Kevin Sarbone. That again? Kevin Sarbone. Kevin Sarbo. Mm-hmm. Like Hercules, Kevin Sorbo? Yeah, he's done movies. He's still doing movies now. Kevin Sorbo. Ah, fuck you. I got one. All right, cool. All right, Kevin Sorbo was in Call the Conqueror with Tia Carreri. Tia Carreri was in fucking True Lies with Jamie Lee Curtis. Jamie Lee Curtis was in Dropping, uh, Trading Places with uh, Eddie Murphy. Yeah, that was quick. Yeah. Yeah, I remember Call of the Conqueror. They want to be Conan. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> speaking of uh, speaking of Hollywood stars past, Polly Shore. Okay. That's will be easy too. Uh Polly Shore is in, in the army now with David Allen Gray. David Allen Gray was in Boomerang with Eddie Murphy. That's right, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, all of Polly Shore's movies, that one's my favorite. I know a lot of people love Encino Man. Was it Encino Man? That was the one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, In the Army Man is the best movie. Classic. I saw that like, two two weeks after I watched Major Pain. Yeah, the Water Boy shit. Yeah. Yeah, pool, yeah my brother, my, always, my brother was a pool guy. So. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Water purification. Yeah, bro. It's the easiest job in the military. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, so this uh, is seven. Yeah, you know, did you know Paul Mooney's in that movie too? Oh shit, that's right. Yeah, he was the uh, army dude with. Uh, they were talking about they're gay and they couldn't go. Yeah. So, oh yeah. Just uh, one more thing. What? Kiss him. Excuse me. <laughs> Kiss him. I mean, you won't have a problem with that, right? Oh yeah. No, I kiss him all the time. Yeah. <laughs> It's him and Andy Dick, and they're trying to couldn't kiss each other. <laughs> he probably just gives us like, oh. look, is it hot in Chad? <laughs> Such a great film. Yeah, yeah. See, it actually is. A, it actually is a pretty decent movie. Well, for sure. I, honestly, I think that's that's my favorite of everything he did. Son in Law was good too, but yeah, and in the Army now is the best one. Actually, funny, you know what I love more than that? His cameo in uh, Class Act with Kid and Play. Oh, yeah. Cool, buddies. <laughs> and even then, I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> Doing this Polly Shore shit. Who's <laughs> to talk to the man then? Yeah. Hey, Bladish, dude, talk to me. Getting sued. What? <laughs> <laughs> I'm the weasel. Yeah. It was, it was the 90s. What can we say? 
Yeah, he was on his own shit, man. I don't, I don't, even I, I can't give that as an excuse. He was on his own shit. It just happened to be in the nineties. True enough. Yeah. All right. So that was uh, Seven Degrees of Eddie Murphy. I'll do it again. <laughs> Now let's go to another favorite of this particular podcast, WWBS, What Would Busey Say?, where I improvise a rant uh, as the great Gary Busey. Now, AJ, what uh, subject, and don't, don't say anything corona-related, let's, let's, oh, let's no. try something. Oh, okay, okay. I want to know what, 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 Busey's opinion what, what, feelings on Cats. Cats the movie? Take it any way you want it. Could be the movie or it could be the animal. Let's go with the movie. All right. <laughs> cats. Let me tell you something about cats, okay? I am one love me a great musical. Okay. Loves me a good musical. Like, you know, a lot of people don't think Schindler's List is a musical, but if you look at it, it is a very romantic story. So, you know what I'm saying? So, I see kind of things like that. Now, when they tried to dramatize Cats as an actual film, going the CGI route, now, I thought that was bullshit at first. Then I watched it. Uh, well, let me preface that. I watched it while on LSD, and it is a fantastic experience, especially when you're a new breed. I mean, these people, they got, the, they got the people face, but they got the cat bodies, you know. And I think one of them shows her asshole at one point. I think it's pretty cool. I mean, look at this, like, like singing around, you know, something, la, 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 la. it's really fucking crazy, man. It's pretty dope. Like, I love Cats. You know, you know, I would do a musical like that. I would do a musical like that myself. And I think I would call it, Fish. Yeah. <laughs> fish, man. Look, people, fish head, people faces on fish bodies, man. They're going around the ocean, you know what I'm saying? Like, Fish the movie, man. <laughs> You've got to be better than fish the band. Huh? It's got to be better than fish the band. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, definitely better than that shit. All right, so uh, we got that down. All right, uh, so next up would be dropping that news. Dropping that news. Right. Uh, ain't shit going on. Ain't a goddamn thing going on right now. I mean, because it's fucking coronavirus. Yeah, well, I was going to say, if you follow, like, anybody that, that's on, like, LinkedIn or anything like that that is in the business, they're all posting all kinds of articles and stuff. But the reality is... Nothing happening, nothing shooting. People aren't taking meetings. Anybody who's getting a meeting is doing it pretty much via the internet. Uh, and they're, you know, same people always talking to each other. So they want to announce stuff to look like they're busy and like stuff's going on. But yeah. our world's still shut down, especially L.A. and New York. Uh, the only two things I've seen so far have been related to The Mandalorian in terms of casting. Yeah. And, uh, it's actually, they, just, they just recently announced uh, two new castings. Excuse me. Oh. 
uh, two new casters I'm actually pretty excited about. Number one, uh, Rosario Dawson. Yeah. And her to the Mandalorian season two. And also, fucking Terminator, Michael Bean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm happy to see anything with Michael Bean in it, to be honest with you. Yeah, Love look, it's, it's anything going on with Disney Plus right now is good. Anything with Mandalorian is looking good. But like I yeah. said, I mean, they're mostly just following up on negotiations that happened ahead of time. So, yeah. It's hard to call the news. Now, the one thing I think is going to be great, uh, I heard somebody mention recently, I think there's a huge chance that we're going to see an, a major upsurge really soon in, uh, in new content because everyone's burning through hours and hours and hours of everything. Mm-hmm. So by the yeah, time, yeah. you know, all this stuff settles in another month, yeah. they're going to need a lot of content on Disney+. Plus. They're going to need a lot of content on Hulu and Netflix and Amazon. They're going to go gangbusters. So uh, yeah. obviously a few older shows, I think, get canceled. Because, you know, you're, you're already kind of just sort of hanging on and their budget's going to be blown. And I think at a certain point, the executives are going to take the write off, whatever insurance claim they can pull and just go for something fresh and new. Because ultimately, newer shows are generally cheaper uh, and older shows with dwindling audiences just are not worth the risk. So it'll be interesting to see who survives and who, you know, gets reincarnated to something else. <laughs> Yeah, um, that's basically it, man. Like, uh, everybody's going through the streaming services right now. Like, I'm looking at the streaming service as I'm, like, uh, doing this podcast with you, uh, mainly the WWE Network, but I've been on Netflix all day. I've been on Hulu a little bit yesterday. So, yeah, I've been going through everything, all the classic stuff that I love, um, trying to go into a couple of other things, just to test the waters, see what's up with them. A um, couple, couple of them didn't really catch me. Uh, I tried to, that, uh, what's that shit, the Mar- Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Yeah, uh, can get can get into that shit. Um, what else? Oh, you know, one that really tripped me out was uh, the shit Tiger King on Netflix. What was that? I've seen. It's fucking nuts. That dude, the dude, uh, I forgot his name, but like the dude himself was completely nuts. I'm just starting it, but yeah, he's like, you know, he got these tigers and he's making these crazy videos about conservation. He's country music star. He sees kill people. He's like, he just he's just all over the place, man. And, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it is, it, is, it is interesting so far. I haven't watched the whole thing, but I'm going to try to watch it again. Also, uh, one show I would like to plug, mainly because I have it on me on it, uh, 100 Humans uh, on Netflix. Uh, for those of you folks out there who want to see something different, uh, check out 100 Humans on Netflix. Uh, basically, it's a social experiment show uh, using 100 different people um, of different ages, races, uh, sexual orientation, you know, different parts of the country, and we're all coming together in this like little bubble uh, and put through these particular tests to see how certain people react to certain situations. I happen to be one of the 100. Uh, I'm human number 58. Uh, it's been doing very well. It's been in the top 10 of Netflix in different countries since the debut. I think it's like number eight or nine in America, but it's like one or two or three in other countries. And actually, my buddy of mine is like, uh, say, hey, man, I should get, a, I should get like business cards and say I'm, I'm big and sweet. Which technically, I'm, I am. So I think it's like number one. Cards you know. I'm number fifty-eight. Yeah, well, number, I'm number fifty-eight. Goddamn. Yeah. <laughs> so, but the thing about it is, like, I'm kind of happy that, um, well, I, I'm not on the show as much as I would like, but then I'm seeing the reaction that some of the other cast members are getting. And I'm happy because the fact they got people all over the world stalking them now, and asking them questions about the show, and 
know, uh, saying, hey, I hate you, I hate you, uh, I like you, I hate you, like, you know, shit like that. I get a couple things here and there on Twitter, which is cool, because uh, I have a couple moments here and there. Uh, but for the most part, yeah, all the other people, like, hey, the kind of fame they're getting, you can have it. You know what I'm saying? And actually, one of the uh, guys has gotten really popular. He did a song on the show, the Tic Tac Toe song, and he named Ty Snow. And it's gotten really popular on, like, TikTok and things like that. And he wants us to shoot a music video, basically, like, like this from home, uh, doing some little dance that he, he's coming up with for TikTok, and he's hoping that it goes viral. And probably will, because I've seen, like, like kids doing acoustic versions of his song. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. So he's, he's trying to strike while the iron's hot. Good for him. Um, but, yeah, uh, like I said, I'm, I'm really happy for all the attention. Also, another thing that happened to me, uh, my episode of In Ice Cold Blood aired this past week. Uh, so <laughs> for those of you folks who like crime reenactment shows, you get to see one half of Dropping That Culture, uh, you know what I'm saying, on the show basically as a would-be killer. And they kind of had me as this big of mice and men type kind of character where, you know what I'm saying, like, like I'm not really that smart, but, like, same time, like, because it's so big, like, kind of overestimate my strength, that kind of thing. And uh, they have several interrogation scenes with me, and I do the whole, you know, uh, he's a friend at the bar, you know what I'm saying? Like, he's sitting there chilling, and then, but he, the girl, he wants the girl, but the girl don't want him. And could he be the killer? Watch it and find out. Could he be Lenny? I'm basically Lenny, dude. That is basically the direction I was giving. Do you know what I'm actually happiest about? Is that we're rapidly approaching that point in time where you get to be Troy McClure. You go, hi, I'm Troy McClure. You might recognize me in such shows as... What are humans? <laughs> That's actually a really good point. <laughs> Troy McClure, I, I, I did not think about that. Yeah, like, Hi, I'm Troy McClure. You <laughs> might have been so much finally coming out this year that's like getting some good, like your music videos have been getting some really good plays. And yeah. actually the, uh, the remix of the thong song, I mean, you're like the central character in that whole thing. So that's fantastic, you know, for you. Oh, Which, yeah, man. It's nothing like the Cisco thong song from our youth. I agree. I agree. Cause they, I like, why, even, I, even I said it on when I was on set, I was like, why are why, why they wearing thongs? So it's the thong song. They'll put, put on some thongs. Both of them got really the old lady. The old lady wearing But I'm talking about the, the two young girls. Like, fucking, like, <laughs> like, they got really nice asses. Why don't you put them in thongs? I, even I said that. But that was the direction they went with. These are like, these are, and the whole crew was like Dutch. So it was, you know, it was whatever. <laughs> oh, yeah, I think I have another music video coming out pretty soon by uh, an uh, Iranian artist named Sammy Baji. Mm. Uh, shot that up in the Hollywood Hills. Uh, yeah, it looked like a great night. That shit was fun, bro. Like, all we had, no, it was like, it was like, I felt like a drug dealer in a Michael Bay movie. Was that the Lou Ferrigno house from, uh, from I Love You, Man? No. No, no, because that shit had a big yard. It had a big yard with a statue. No, this was like a, one of those like sunken type Hollywood Hills type houses. Where it's like, it's like, like that's why I wasn't sure. No, no, like where it's like it's nice up top, but then you have to walk down to the actual house. Okay. You know I'm like, yeah, so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was a really nice house. And like I said, they got a dope pool and all these Maseratis and all, this other, and all, the, all the main people was like Iranian. 
and, and uh, they were talking about all the cars they got. Like, this one dude that was like a dentist. He got like a Maserati. Like, my Maserati. No, no, bring my Lambo. Ooh, you're a He's doing pretty well out here. I came to America 10 years ago. Now I have Bitly and I have Maserati. The beauty of capitalism, my friend. Play the game, right? Yeah, they yeah, they running that shit. <laughs> but yeah, it was a very fun video. I'm waiting to see how that goes around. So yeah. well at least now you people know. understand if I start calling you Troy. <laughs> I get it now. Yeah. All right, that has been dropping that news. Dropping that news. Very nice. Thank you. <laughs> All right, let's get into the meat potatoes of our podcast here today. Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, doing a big uh, retrospective into the work of the great Rick Baker. Yes. Possibly the greatest makeup artist in movie history. Uh, there have been other makeup artists who we'll, Similar claims, Stan Winston, Rob Routine, uh, I'm trying to think of other ones. Like the, yeah, but those are, those are like the main guys, man, like freaking like the, oh yeah, Dick Smith, uh, the Westmore family who did like all the Rocky movies and Star Trek and shit like that. But yeah, Rick Baker is just on the class of his own because of the fact that, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, he, his movies have like go ahead, go ahead. I part of the problem too is that now you've you've kind of lost that, right? Because if you go back to to the golden age of Hollywood makeup, right, coming up from really probably I'd say the '60s, early '70s, up until the mid to late '90s, you had to do majority of your effects in camera, right? They had to be practical effects. Now mm-hmm. you're in a situation where you're going to throw some green screen makeup and stuff like that on your character and you can go in later. And I mean, like that was one of the things that made um, Two-Face, uh, Harvey Dent, so much more terrifying and visceral and comic booky and weird and everything in The Dark Knight was they're able to basically go back in and fix a lot of it and change a lot of it with the CGI to make it a little more grotesque and terrifying. Rick Baker, it's, it's hard to come up with anybody in his league and it's impossible to find anyone in my opinion that's, that's ever surpassed him in part because it's honestly, it's a dying art form. Yeah. And also Rick Baker did Two-Face. Remember? He did him in Batman Forever. Yeah, for sure. Tom, yeah. Tommy Lee Jones's version of Two-Face yeah. is Rick Baker's work. But yeah, then you go to the Dark Knight where they got the actual skin exposed. Well, with the CGI makes it look like the skin is exposed and the you see the scene and all this shit. And you see right, well, and that's why I wanted to use the two as, as kind of like a jumping off point. You can even look at it if you go to like, you know, from Total Recall to the most recent Total Recall, the amount of CGI that they use and makeup effects when working on aliens or any kind of grotesque after effects, that sort of a thing. You're really down now to a point in time where the majority of anything that's done for creating monsters, creating characters, stuff like that, they're doing most of it and in an After Effects setup, doing VFX with, with all the modern films, I mean, you're not really getting much more than small burns, blood, stuff like that in, you know, most of the, the films you're going to watch as far as anything in camera these days. I mean, he... Yeah, I've been watching, yeah, I'm, yeah, I've been watching the behind-the-scenes thing of the John Wick movies and, like, all that stuff with CGI. Yeah. All that blood, like, all the blood and splatter, all you see in I mean, you very, yeah, you very rarely get squibs anymore. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah, it's a different time. Yes, it is. All right, but I'm going to go ahead and go into a quick quote from Mr. Baker himself about why he got into the whole get down on making uh, masks for movies. This is a quote from Rick Baker. 
I was always fascinated with monsters and movies. And when I realized that someone actually did that and you could do it as a job, I just became obsessed with it. Uh, so many of my dreams were to actually be able to make a living of what I did as a hobby. I used to have to save my allowances to buy a quarter rubber to buy a mat to make a mask. And that's how I spent all my free time. I still do. I got into this because I love the work. I don't know anybody in the film business or really, uh, I, I didn't know anybody in the film business and I didn't really have a plan B. Uh, it's a good thing it worked out because uh, I would be sitting probably on the freeway with a sign that says, we'll do makeup for food. So, love that. But yeah, love yeah, like I said, like he, he made a, a very good living of his passion, man. He really did. So let's go ahead and get into the biological facts of Mr. Rick Baker. Uh, born December 8th, 1950 in uh, Binghamton, New York. Uh, his real name is Richard Allen Baker. Uh, he was uh, born to Richard, uh, he was born to uh, Doris, a bank teller, and Ralph, a professional artist. And then they moved to uh, Covina, California when he was less than one year old. Uh, his first marriage was to a lady named um, Elaine Alexander from 1974 to 1984. His second marriage is to a lady named uh, Sylvia uh, Aspical. Uh, they've been married since 1987. They actually met on the set of a John Landis movie, uh, Into the Night. Uh, he played he played a drug dealer in the movie. She played a prostitute. Mm -hmm. It's actually a great it's actually a great picture in John Landis's book. We see uh, Rick and his wife together in there in costume and stuff. I'm like, oh yeah, that's what it meant. <laughs> it's a great <laughs> way actually, Yeah, exactly. And recently, uh, he did a, a episode of uh, the Kevin Smith podcast. Uh, I think Fat Man Beyond at the uh, Scum and Villainy Cantina in Hollywood. He said, like right across the way. In 1980, 1980, whatever, is where he met his wife. Right across the street. So, ain't life ain't that grand. <laughs> <laughs> sure ain't bad. Yeah. Uh, they have two children together, uh, Veronica and Rebecca. I believe Veronica works for DC. Uh, they, I've, I've seen her, like, uh, if you have DC Universe, the streaming service, uh, there is actually a show that they have, like, daily DC or something like that, or DC Daily, and she's one of the correspondents on it. So. That's cool. Yeah, and because of that, uh, Rick actually did a sculpting. It's really cool sculpting. If you go on his Instagram, the Rick Baker, it's a really cool sculpting he did of the of his version of what the Joker would be. And I think it's it's fantastic to see. Yeah, well, I mean, we should just say, regardless of what it is you like or don't like, check out Rick Baker's Instagram because he's got some killer stuff on there, and he updates pretty regularly. Yeah, and then, yeah, and then at the same time, he's doing this stuff for fun. It's better than pretty much anything I'll see in the film right now. Oh, 100%. Well, and I mean, that's one of those arguments for getting out of the way of the artist, right? Yeah, uh, that's actually part of the reasons he has retired. Well, I'm going to get into that a little bit later. Now, some of his trademarks for some of his films were basically his uh, incredibly realistic creature effects. Uh, basically, the his, his trademark look now, the long white hair with the ponytail and, and the beard and all that shit, that's his look now. Uh, he's basically worked with, he's often worked with directors like uh, John Landis. Um, well, actually, more, um, most most of his uh, collaborations in terms of director, uh, artist, whatever, is him and John Landis. And John Landis is really the one that kind of jumped him off anyway. More into that yeah. a little bit later. Yeah. American Werewolf, right? I mean, he got the Academy Award off that. Yeah. Uh, they've done uh, four projects together officially. Uh, Schlock, uh, An American Werewolf from London. Coming to America, Michael Jackson's Thriller, uh, five actually, and also the Kentucky Fried movie they did together. 
Right. So, well, and technically, yeah. Michael Jackson's Thriller is it's a music video. It's not a movie, right? So that's why he can count it as the the additional. Actually, that's the been the weird debate about Michael Jackson's Thriller. A lot of people say it's a music video, but because of its length and because of its like cinematic quality, yeah, the kids call it short film. So, and then also, it was actually released theatrically. So that's true. I forgot it did have that limited run. Right. So yeah. Well, that was I so think I, it was uh, that was so it could qualify for the Academy. That's exactly why it was. Yeah. Uh, ran with Fantasia. They did a re-release of Fantasia. It ran with that. So. Uh, but yeah, um, Rick Baker also create often creates uh, effects for particularly apes and werewolves. Those are his like two fortes. He's very good at both. Oh yeah. Uh, he, yeah. He often he did many collaborations with Eddie Murphy, several, uh, and uh, more often than not, sports that beard he has. Now those are pretty much his trademarks. Now um, another uh, quote he had in terms of like getting to the facts of why he did. Uh, the first, this is another quote from Rick Baker. The first makeup artist that I was ever really aware of and became a fan of was Jack Pierce. Jack Pierce, because he did all the great universal monsters, especially Frankenstein's monster. Uh, that makeup hasn't been undone. It's become this iconic image. Uh, whenever, think, whenever anybody thinks of a monster, they're thinking of basically Jack's makeup. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> true. Yeah. And let's see what else here. Now, uh, how he got started, as he was a teenager, he began making artificial body parts in his kitchen. And he, he said he apparently started uh, making up his friends in the neighborhood, uh, giving them, like, gashes and, like, different, like, uh, wounds and stuff like that, making them up, really gassy stuff, and to the point where, like, many of the parents in the neighborhood would not bring their children around Rick anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's just good fun. Nothing <laughs> Yeah, no, I got here. It's just makeup. That's all it is, makeup. Uh, but he also uh, did what they call a, uh, oh, yeah, well, his actual first professional job was as a uh, production assistant to another uh, uh, makeup effects artist, Dick Smith, who I mentioned a little bit earlier, who did the makeup for The Exorcist. So Rob, so uh, Rick Baker was the assistant of the guy who did the makeup for The Exorcist. Uh, all that shit, you know what I'm saying? The spinning head and, and the pea soup and all that shit. Yeah, Rick Baker helped out. That's got some pretty solid, solid effects, practical in-camera stuff going on. I mean, it's, it wasn't bad. It's you iconic, know? man. Like, you see, you think there's some possessions. First thing that comes to people's heads is the exorcist. So, yeah. Uh, after that, he actually he actually designed the infant baby in the uh, Larry Cohen movie. It's a lie. The basket baby? Yeah. With the big head in the, in the veins and shit, like yeah, I came up with that. <laughs> that was a, that was a pretty uh, pretty gas. I mean, that's the other thing too. You got to remember with some of, especially some of the earlier work, you mm -hmm. got to remember the point in time it was done, right? Makes both in terms of what was actually possible, mm -hmm. and in terms of what the censors would let you get away with to put on television. Because there's like Rick's always been a very very talented guy. I mean, you look at a lot of his early stuff, some of the things he saved. You can tell that they pulled back on some of the, almost for lack of a better word, the explicit nature of where he can go with some of it, because it can be pretty ghastly. Yeah, and he worked on other movies during that time frame, like uh, Octoman, and uh, what's the other one? Uh, well, there's a bunch of them, but like Octoman, uh, The Incredible Melting Man. Uh, he did stuff like that. Uh, what's the shit? Uh, like a lot of the King, like, yeah, he was King Kong. 
in uh, like 75, I believe. I'll get into that a little bit later. But he was King Kong at one point. And uh, like a lot of apes. Uh, he was the ape Gino in, um, in Kentucky Fried Movie. He's also an ape in The Incredible Shrinking Woman. Mm. And mm. Uh, he did Schlock, uh, most notably, John Landis' first movie in 1971. I believe. That, was, that was a collaboration. It was their first collaboration, and then that's when they first got the head of like what would what would what eventually become an American world for London. John Landis said, and during our John Landis episode, we talked about how John wrote the script when he was like nineteen. He made this first movie when he was twenty-one. Rick was twenty, and he said, "Next movie I'm gonna do because he was all excited and young. Next movie I'm gonna do is an American world for London." Now. Uh, I had this idea. I don't want to do a two-legged monster. I want to do a four-legged hound from hell. Is that possible? And Rick was like, well, with some time and money, I could probably do it. Uh, Ten years later, uh, they ended up actually doing it and shit. We'll get into more on that a little bit later. But yeah, that was that first collaboration. So he did a lot of stuff during that time frame. The more famous one that he did before American World from London was the Cantina sequence in Star Wars. Yeah. He did a lot of those makeups. Majority, vast majority of them actually. In fact, one of the ones that's most prominent that he did is the the red man with the devil horns. Yeah, yeah that was Rick Baker. That was all Rick Baker right there. So, and like this one looks like a little little person who's like a like a human bat, and like all the different weirdo aliens and shit. Rick came up with a lot of them, man. So look around there. That's Rick Baker's work, man. And it, like I said, it's crazy too. Like they had that podcast in the Scum and Villainy Cantina, and he actually worked on a real Scum and Villainy Cantina. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, a, it's the most appropriate place in Hollywood to do an interview with him. Oh yeah, it was great, man. Now, aside from being a makeup artist, Rick has actually done a lot of cameos in a lot of the projects that he's done. Uh, number one that he did was uh, he played, like I said, he played the title role of King Kong in 1974 for Dino De Laurentiis. Actually, he's also in the 2005 remake with Peter Jackson. He's actually one of the pilots that guns down uh, King Kong, the, the CGI King Kong. Uh, he's in Men in Black 2 uh, as an agent. He's also in Men in Black 3 as the brain alien. I forget, but it's like one alien with like a huge exposed brain. He, that's him. Uh, he's in Thriller as one of the zombies. Particularly, uh, Rick Becker is the one zombie where it's like a zombies are coming out of like the ground or whatnot. Yeah. And there's yeah. one there's one zombie that comes out of a crypt and he has like stuff all in his mouth. He's like eyes are sunken in. He comes out. That's Rick Baker. And he, it's, it's so gross. But it, 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 stuff the vile and black stuff that's coming out of his mouth is it's pretty gross. No, it's killing Yes, sir. Uh, he's also in the Haunted Mansion where Eddie Murphy has multiple graveyard ghosts. Uh, he is actually in the Wolfman remake in 2010. He's the wolf, the wolf's first kill. Oh, right. Uh, yeah, he, he's like an old gypsy guy. And he's also in the movie Rings, the sequel to The Ring, as a flea market man because he did the makeup effect for The Ring. Oh, okay. The girl, uh, girl yeah. coming out to TV and shit. Yeah, that, that was Rick Baker. So, oh, cool. Another killer one. Yeah. Uh, we're going to go into some facts about Mr. Becker himself now he claims that his work on Harry and the Hendersons is one of his proudest moments uh, Harry and the Hendersons for those of you who don't know is the movie about this family who encounters basically Bigfoot a big friendly Bigfoot and brings it back to the home and chaos ensues and like, uh, can we keep can we keep uh, Bigfoot as our pet in the house and shit he's like the 7 foot, seven foot plus you know, giant Ape monster in their house, you know, because white folks. Uh, but 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's got to be. <laughs> it's probably a reason that, that Harry's never actually gone home with. <laughs> Ain't no black family keeping a Bigfoot, man. I'm saying. <laughs> well, and here's the other thing, too. They got to be a wealthy Midwestern, or not Midwestern, Northwestern family as well. Because yeah, yeah. Anybody, anybody who's got real problems financially, the last thing they're going to do is drag some ape monster home. Yeah, do exactly. Cap to the hood of their car. Oh my god! Yeah, but he but he did win the Oscar for Harry and the Hansons, as he should have, because that was a fantastic movie. It's a killer flick. If you've never seen it, it's heartwarming. It's fun. It's family friendly. It's great. Yeah. Uh, in nineteen eighty one, as we talked about in the John Landis episode, Rick Baker was the very first recipient of the Academy Award for Best Makeup for his work on an American World from London. That's how good his makeup was for that movie. It's not good his makeup was for everything. If they'd have had it back when, he should have got it for uh, New Hope. Yeah. But uh, like I said, the main reason they came up with the category to begin with was because of the, the Elephant Man came out the year before. Yeah. And he thought, you know what, this makeup is so good, it should have been nominated for an Academy Award. So they came up with the category next year. Hopefully, eventually, they'll, they'll get their head straight and we'll do the same thing for stunts. Yeah. Yeah, we talked about that. Yeah, they actually, uh, uh, what's the name of uh, Sag, uh, the SAG Awards does stunts, but yeah, for some reason, the actual candy won't. It's weird. Uh, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I don't get it either. Uh, he actually attended uh, New, uh, Northview High School in Covina, California. He actually made his own <laughs> gorilla costume. He actually found himself swinging from the goalposts in the football field. He will also go to the drive-in, the local drive-in down there, uh, in the same ape costume, scaring people while they're watching Planet of the Apes. <laughs> <laughs> so people are like, like they watch Planet of the Apes and then some ape dude goes, climb up. Oh, it sounded like he was fun to hang with, man. For sure. Yeah. Uh, the Michael Jackson song, Threatened, from the uh, Invincible album, is dedicated to Rick Baker. Uh, they also worked together on uh, uh, Michael Jackson's Thriller, of course, and uh, he did also did some uh, some minor effects for Captain EO, the Disney thing that Michael Jackson did. So oh, very right. minor stuff, but so minor that he didn't really get a credit for it. But he did do some stuff on this on uh, Captain EO. Uh, he also has a framed picture of uh, Jack Pierce that he kept in his office, and the, and the framed picture is basically Jack Pierce finishing up Boris Karloff as Frankenstein. Like I said, that's the one photo that he, you know, that's the one guy he admires the most and the one makeup that he admires the most. It's I, I got a photo of it. I think I actually have that on my Instagram feed. Nice. Yeah, it's cool. a killer, killer photo, the one of Jack. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he holds the record for the most Oscar wins among makeup artists and also most nominations. He's been nominated 12 times and had seven wins. His wins include an American Werewolf in London, Harry and the Hendersons, Ed Wood, The Nutty Professor, Men in Black, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, and The Wolfman, the most recent one. That was in 2010. Actually, in terms of like uh, more facts of what I'm doing here, I'm going to be going through pretty much each of those movies, just little facts of each one of them, uh, and a couple ones that I do like myself. Uh, but those are his awards. Uh, he, he presented his mentor, uh, Dick Smith, with an honorary Oscar in 2011. Uh, he actually, like I said, he retired uh, from the motion picture industry in 2015. Uh, he also uh, has an estimated 
Oh yeah, he received an estimated $1 million for an auction of his collection of props and items that he's collected over the uh, course of his career. So somebody gave him a million dollars for some of this stuff. He has mm-hmm. a star, his own star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame at uh, 2724 Hollywood Boulevard. Uh, I don't know exactly where that's at, but it's on Hollywood Boulevard. It's on uh, he also received an honorary doctorate uh, in humane letters from uh, the Academy of Art University in San Francisco. And he also collaborates a lot on the on the YouTube page Trailers from Hell. He's on there a lot, along with a lot of other like old school directors like John Landis, Joe Dante. I think Spielberg's done one. Uh, you know, people like that, John Carpenter, like people that like have like this particular movies that they love. They love talking about them, so they find the old trailers and they talk about them. And yeah, uh, it's pretty cool. Now, Rick Baker himself has commented on his uh, retirement. He said. Uh, the whole industry changed. I had a 6,000 square foot studio, which is great for, you know, How the Grinch Stole Christmas and the Planet of the Apes remake I did, but it's not great for just making a nose for somebody. And I've had that. I've had one project where I had a guy making some teeth in this 6,000 square foot uh, building by himself in the summer. The air conditioning bill was more than I was getting paid to make the teeth. So it just became uh, time, you know. These big jobs don't ex- those big jobs don't exist anymore. As a young man, when I finally got started meeting some people in the industry, I met a lot of bitter people, a lot of old crabby guys, and I thought, uh, how can you be like that? You're in this amazing industry doing these cool things, and I didn't want to become that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, the other thing too is, you know, talking about stuff shifting, right? You look at what real estate costs in California when he first started his studio in 81. Mm-hmm. Costs now just to rent, let alone purchase. Yeah. And then you add to that all the taxes and everything else, payroll taxes, blah, 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 blah. blah. At a certain point, it really truly isn't worth it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, if a big yeah. job comes along, he's better off to just go rent a space for six months. True. It also says one more thing about his retirement. He said, first of all, the CGI stuff definitely took the uh, took the animatronics part of what I do. Now, it's starting to take away from the makeup part as well. The time is right. I'm 64 years old. The business is crazy right now. I like to do things right, and they want cheap and fast. That's not how I want to do it, so I decided it's basically time to get out. I consider just – I would consider – designing or consulting on something, but I don't think I'll be working for a huge studio anytime soon. Well, and again, where's that going to come from, right? I mean, they've already made two Planet of the Apes reboots. Yeah. Nothing, right? There was nothing there for them. The last time they played around doing anything with, what was it, the, I think the Lorac was the last Dr. Seuss one. Again, there was yeah. um, CGI. All, all the live action stuff that has gone CGI. They're just not, they're not doing that in-camera stuff anymore. They even did a re. They even did a re CGI of the Grinch. He yeah. did the Grinch, yeah. So yeah, I mean, there's just unfortunately there's just not enough there for it. And the the real sad and scary thing is, is that at a certain point, that that skill set's going to get lost because this is like this is the thing that like people don't get. Like part of the reason why we talk about guilds in film and television, mm-hmm. they really are set up more on the old model where you have to go in an apprentice and be mentored by somebody especially on those high skilled things like makeup, like costume design, those sorts of things where you have to spend a bunch of time with people who are master craftsmen. Yeah. Learn the right way to do things, 
have the opportunity to experiment, play with these new options, these new things, and then, you know, fail or succeed and, and grow that way. This isn't something you can't really go to school and get a degree in it and go out and get a job. It's just, that's just not how it works. And as they continue to dwindle the size and scope of what you can do in that, it's unfortunately going to just destroy the ranks. Yeah, I'll give you that. You might now, have to, um, to do a scar. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, of course, I've, I've, I've told you my ambition of wanting to do a werewolf movie with you. And uh, my dream would be for us to be able to course Rick Baker to do a werewolf movie. Uh, I mean, that would be dope. Or at least one of his apprentices. I would rather Rick. Who, who wouldn't rather Rick? I would rather Rick. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> I want it to be in the Rick Baker family. Yeah, exactly. I want to be in the Rick Baker family. So, uh, but let's go ahead and get into his actual work itself. Now, one thing I want to start off is uh, his movies with apes. Now, the first big one he did, of course, I mentioned it before, King Kong in 1976. Rick created four ape suits. Uh, he actually had a special undersuit with a silicone-filled with silicone-filled muscles that uh, realistically depicted the musculature of an ape. And he also had the hands. Uh, used as uh, animatronic extensions that were operated by controllers offset, so they gave the King Kong the appropriate long, uh, long, lengthy limbs and whatnot. Uh, they, they actually did build a 40-foot King Kong, uh, <laughs> the animatronic one. I think they used that again for Universal Studios, that, that particular one with the giant... Oh, for like uh, the, the tour or whatever? Yeah, for the tour, yeah. So, But yeah, that King Kong they actually used for the 76 movie. It was a big deal at the time. Uh, they also created seven different masks with him and another guy, Carlo uh, Rambaldi. A lot of people don't know who Carlo Rambaldi is. He, he's the dude that designed E.T. All right. So, yeah, he did some masks with Rick, and Rick molded them, giving them different expressions, uh, different, uh, uh, different masks for, like, a different expression, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, they also put the masks on this plastic skull they could use, like, they could, like articulate in different things. Like, they actually created this little animatronic skull where they can move the eyebrows. And, move the, and this is, like, 1976. Yeah, minimal, minimal musculature uh, manipulation. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's basically And then the same thing. He also wore contact lenses uh, to make his eyes resemble that of a gorilla. Uh, now, his next, another gorilla movie he did, Greystoke, The Legend of Tarzan, Lord of the Apes, with uh, what's his name, uh, Christopher Lambert. Yeah, is Tarzan. <laughs> <laughs> now the ape, the ape makeup effects of that took about seven million dollars of its forty million dollar budget. Uh, the ape suits were so thorough that the actors had arm extensions again to adapt for walking and hanging and grasping as the scene required. Uh, Rick Baker's uh, workshop basically became an ape suit ape suit factory. And they turn out numerous finished suits, basically a assembly line style, uh, in eight weeks, pretty much eight weeks per suit. And uh, suits were the suits were like far from identical because of the fact that the script dictated they had to have distinctive apes, uh, distinguishable as characters, basically. And a uh, few of them are actually uh, aged very well over time. Now, in terms of the unique looks and shit, he wanted like chimps and uh, you know. Um, Gorillas with aggressive white eyes and like little orangutan gorillas. He had all different types of gorillas, man. They look great in the movie. If you ever get a chance to watch the movie, I think it came out in like 84 or 85. 
Yeah. Uh, around then. You know, the other thing too, that's kind of interesting about the, uh, the suits that did age well, because I remember hearing uh, Rick Baker talking about this, um, that silicon or silicone doesn't typically last very long. It tends to break down really quickly over time. So manipulating it, touching it, all of that kind of stuff ends, uh, ends up kind of destroying it pretty quickly. Um, yeah. The fact that anything's left from a movie that's 30 years old, it's, it's really remarkable. And it says a lot about his craftsmanship that they're able to keep something that fragile intact. Yeah, uh, that's what happened with a lot of the makeup effects from American World from London. Like the silicon, like kept plasticizing, and it just became like this goop. So like a lot of that stuff doesn't really remain either. Uh, another big one, uh, probably his one of his biggest gorilla ones, Gorillas in the Mist. It's a Gwendy Weaver. <laughs> <sighs> Gorillas in the Mist was a Gwendy Weaver. I love. Uh, I remember um, they did a joke about that on the Living Color. Uh, but, uh, no, it was a, uh, no, uh, Jim Carrey as George Hamilton, and they, they, it was like doing this makeup line. Oh no, it was like an actual line of luggage made from George Hamilton's skin, and because <laughs> his tan, his super tan, leathery skin, and they had the, uh, they did the whole. Remember, there's some old commercial back in the seventies, but they had, to test how tough this luggage is, they had a gorilla just tossing around the room. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So they did the same thing with the George uh, Hamilton shit. It had Jim Carrey's face on, of course. And then, like at one point, he says, uh, "Sigourney Weaver wears army boots." <laughs> <laughs> to the gorilla man, but yeah, same thing. This big Sigourney Weaver movie, Gorillas in the Mist. Uh, in terms of H for that movie, the H suits used in that movie were basically they had a lot of anatomical differences from real gorillas. Uh, for instance, like some of the wearers' uh, red eyes were seen, forced a modification of the mask. Um, uh, also for this movie, the d- director, uh, Michael uh, Apted, uh, wanted real gorillas when possible, but some of the shots um, that they used in terms of the gorilla suits was so good that a lot of times Apted couldn't tell the difference between what was a real gorilla and what was actually a dude in the suit, because uh, that's how good Rick Baker's work was. Uh, but yeah, he, like, he, like, he's killing it with these gorilla shits, man. Like the, suit, like the suits he had was so realistic, they had the forearm extenders, they had a stuntman who would like climb into the suit and he learned how to actually like resemble gorilla movements and stuff like that. And, like, let's like say the, the part, the, the fact that you have actual gorillas there, you can't tell the difference between a gorilla and a dude in a suit. That's good. That's good ass makeup. Dangerous as hell. But yeah, because <laughs> the fact like you try to put, hey, what's up, man? You're like, that's a real gorilla. Oh my man. Gonna turn it yeah, I, I, I thought you was a, I thought you was Jim. I thought you was Jim, man. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Gorilla. <laughs> oh, shit. Uh, another good one, uh, Mighty Joe Young, the remake that he did in the 90s. Yeah. This, this yeah. One, uh, that was a good one, too. I like I liked Mighty Joe Young. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, just a, just a slightly smaller King Kong, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, it, was, it actually had what it had, like, uh, Charlize Theron. And Regina King was in that one. I think Bill Paxton's in. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and Mighty Joe Young. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty decent movie. Now, uh, after Gorillas in the Mist, he basically said he didn't want to do any more. Rick Baker himself said he wanted to do any more projects involving animatronic apes. He actually broke that statement when he did uh, the movie Baby's Day Out. He did a gorilla in that movie. And then he said the shit again after that. Well, no, no, he did this movie. Uh, Mighty Joe Young, that's Disney Plus right now. Isn't that? That's a Disney film, right? Yes, it is. It's on there. 
right, so there you go. So if you want to see what we're talking about, the gorillas. Yeah. Yeah, uh, in the movie, uh, the actual dude in the suit was a dude named John Alexander. He wrote, basically, uh, he wore this uh, radio-controlled animatronic gorilla mask, and uh, the full suit itself, again, created by Rick Baker. Uh, uh, for those effects, he actually had, they actually had the guy, the gorilla guy, on like a miniature set with green screen, and then they composited footage later, of course. Uh, funny enough, they had uh, Joe as an infant, and that was actually Vern Troyer. Any me. Okay. Yeah. And uh yeah, but yeah, Rick Baker like did the full animatronics, they created all that good stuff. And then, yeah, it's like if you watch that movie, it's a very uh, another great articulated like gorilla suit And it's huge. It's fucking huge. Like it had to be at least twenty feet tall. So yeah. And I believe he still has that at his studio, because he has like some studio out here in LA. And uh, you see it like in the background when they do like a tour of it. Kind of an overstatement of the studio versus what he had before. It's more like he's got a workshop. I think might be a better way to put it at this point. True. Yeah. Uh, next movie after that, The Planet of the Apes remake with Tim Burton in 2001. Mm-hmm. That was a huge show. Um, now, initially, Fox wanted uh, computer generated imagery for the apes, but uh, Tim Burton insisted on prosthetic makeup. Now, he had to pick the choice between him and Stan Winston because the fact that Stan Winston actually worked with uh, Rick Baker almost with uh, Tim Burton before on Edward Scissorhands. Um, which so, one? Edward Scissorhands. Oh, right, right, right. That was that was Stan Winston. So he had to pick between Stan Winston and Rick Baker. It was like, oh, my God, potato, potato. But also Rick Baker did the makeup for Ed Wood, which we'll get into a little bit later. I was going to say, potato, you're talking about Edward Scissorhands or the Gorilla King. Go with the Gorilla King. Go with the Gorilla King, yeah. Now, when he got hired, like, Rick Baker said himself, like, uh, I did the Dale O'Renta's version of King Kong 76, and I was always disappointed because I wasn't able to do it as realistically as I wanted. I thought Planet of the Apes would be a good way to uh, make up for that. So he, uh, he also wanted the... Uh, and like him and Tim Burton were adamant that the apes in this movie were more animal-like, flying through the trees, climbing walls, swinging out windows, and going ape shit when they go crazy. You know? So for a month and a half before shooting, the actors themselves went to ape school. Uh, so basically, the actors were uh, put to the school to articulate uh, uh, gorilla movements. The makeup itself, the ape makeup, took 4.5 hours to apply and an hour and a half to take off. So basically, uh, <laughs> better than the Grinch makeup. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, uh, Rick Baker describing the uh, makeup process is like it's like going to the dentist at two o'clock in the morning and having people poke at you for hours, and then you wear an ape costume until like nine o'clock at night. It's crazy. Yeah, the the makeup process, man, is just like this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like actually, if you look at the the certain. Uh, Cast members that worked well with Rick Baker's uh, makeup, some who didn't. Uh, Tim Roth did not like it, and he, like he had a very difficult face to do. Whereas Paul Giamatti loved that shit because he's like a gorilla, he's like a orangutan man, so yeah. it really fit his face. So uh, <laughs> we were talking earlier about the remakes, right? That was, I think, the last decent remake for Planet of the Apes because then you have the, the James Franco one, and then the last one with. Um, Woody Harrelson, where it's yeah. back to the CGI world. 
Yeah. Uh, like I said, again, uh, talk about uh, Paul Giamatti and Tim Roth. Uh, while Paul Giamatti was getting his makeup applied, basically he sat down and watched old episodes of Ultraman and Godzilla movies to keep himself you know, occupied, which is cool. Tim Roth, on the other hand, he suffered, he said. Uh, he, 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 he said he actually didn't mind the hours and hours of makeup, but the actual costume himself was extremely constricting. By the end of the movie, he had trapped nerves and two herniated reverberators in his back. I believe it. I mean, that was a hulking costume. And, you know, Tim Roth isn't that big of a guy. I mean, you watch him in anything that he's ever been in. He's a, he's a much more slender build. I mean, a killer yes, actor, but he just doesn't have that same physicality for something like that. No, he does not. Let's go into some of Rick Baker's comedies that he worked on. Um, first and foremost, in my mind, uh, we already talked about coming to America at, pretty much at length. Uh, I want to, uh, like, a lot of the movies that we've talked about, a lot of the collaborations that he did with John Landis, I'm not going to really talk about because we had a no whole episode dedicated to just that. So I don't want to. Yeah, go, go back and listen to See You Next Wednesday. You'll get all of that stuff. Exactly. So we've done an episode about John Landis before and all the stuff about coming to America, Thriller and American Werewolf in London is in that episode. Go and check that out. Otherwise, we'll be here for another three hours. <laughs> exactly. So uh, now in terms of the comedies, the first one I want to talk about, The Nutty Professor with him and Eddie Murphy. Uh, again, this is the second collaboration between Rick Baker and Eddie Murphy after coming to America. Uh, and this is funny because of the fact that Rick made up Eddie as basically an entire family. A mother, a father, a grandmother, uh, main character, his brother, you know, all that stuff. And then gave him all different personalities. Now, initially, the studio didn't want Eddie to portray all of the Clump family. Um, because they actually thought that uh, uh, hiring four additional actors would have been cheaper than the additional days that it would have required Eddie to go through the different multiple makeup changes and costume changes. Well, and look, one other thing on that, while you're talking about it from the studio perspective, you got to remember this is the first time ever that they've had a major motion picture with one character playing the majority of the uh, of the cast, other than something that might be like a voiceover kind of a thing, right? No, that's not true. Well, what's what's the? Are you gonna go with Peter Peter Seller? Is that who we're going to? No, actually, Alec Guinness did this. I forgot the name of the movie, but Alec, Alec Guinness played like twelve people in one movie. But were they were they all the main characters the way that they are in Nutty Professor? Because I'm not sure what movie you're talking about. I'm not uh, like I'm not sure if they were all main characters, but he played like twelve people in the movie. Because see, the the uh, fact of the matter is, especially when you go with the Nutty Professor, and especially by the time you get to the Clumps, yeah, he's carrying the movie. And you know, if you've never watched any of the behind the scenes, look it up on YouTube for like five seconds. What's going yeah. on? when they're shooting this stuff, they're green screened on a stage and Eddie Murphy is sitting there acting to tennis balls that are mm -hmm. representing every one of the other characters that he's playing. So while he's up there, he's basically having to go from memory or anticipating what he wants to do later for his reactions and everything else. And because of what is actually required, like you're about to go into with the makeup, how long that takes, that sort of a thing, mm -hmm. Eddie now has to sit there and be able to basically play off of what he's going to do later, what, what his reaction should or shouldn't be. At best, he's maybe getting to hear his own playback. At worst, he's dealing with somebody who's sitting there reading off a script, dealing with a script soup or something, or a first aid meet. So he's in a position where he's literally carrying a movie more than any other leading man ever will or, or ever has. So it yeah. puts that at a completely different level from the performance aspect. 
and again, even if Alec had done that, we were talking, I was mentioning Peter Sellers because obviously in um, uh, Dr. Strangelove, mm-hmm. one of my favorites, he plays multiple characters, but he's not playing all of the main characters the same way that Eddie is in Clumps and stuff like that. It's a huge, huge risk. And even for an Eddie Murphy movie where Eddie knocks out of the park, we can also look at, as his career has progressed, there's been a couple movies that they wouldn't necessarily be called knockouts. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a massive thing that the studio looked at and said, okay, with Rick Baker and with you, we're going to say, okay. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people have actually gone on record saying they felt Eddie should have won the Oscar for the very And it's not my favorite Eddie Murphy film. I mean, he's done a lot of great stuff. I love a lot of his movies, but from a purely difficulty and a precision acting standpoint, Mm -hmm. I I don't know who's, who's even on the same level as him. I really don't. Actually, like I said, there's several scenes in the med professor. We talked about this before that are just hard wrenching and he's in the makeup, but you feel, you feel the emotion, particularly the club scene where he's getting heckled by, uh, he's getting beat up, brow beaten by Dave Chappelle's comedian character, yeah. going in yeah. on him, and like him and Jada Pinkett too, and they just in there embarrassed, and he can't do anything about it. You just see the sadness. Just he's going with it at first, but then it's, he just keeps going. He keeps going. It's like he just gets sadder and sadder, and then like he takes her home afterwards. It's this horrible. They had this horrible experience, and now they have, now he leaves, and you see it's raining. Side, he has a he has a his head, and he, as he's leaving, he stops, just takes the newspaper off, and just walks in the rain. Yeah, man. But like you, you, you empathize with Sherman Clump, man. Through all that makeup, it was great performance. I mean, like we're saying, that's that was definitely, and we always talk about this when it comes to the Academy Awards and stuff. They always, for whatever reason, they miss somebody here or there. You know, I mean. Like we talked about with Scorsese, for example, love Scorsese, love Scorsese films. I love Departed. Casino, I think, was probably a stronger one. Should have got it. Goodfellas, absolutely a stronger film. Should have, should have got it, but didn't even get nominations. You know what I mean? It's just, it's kind of a weird thing. It's hard to understand what they're doing some of the time. I got you. Uh, and going back to the quick fact about you talk about the uh, screen test for. Uh, this particular movie. So Eddie Murphy devised a screen test with the makeup uh, provided by Rick Baker, basically him as Mama Clump and Grandmama Clump, just to show the studio like, yeah, we need to do it this way. And they're like, oh, oh okay. Because they're like two different characters, this fantastic makeup, and it's like, whoa, like, you can do that? Like, yeah, we should do, yeah, go forward with this. Now, Eddie himself said that even though he was playing this like overweight character, he actually had to keep himself physically in the best shape of his life. So he was, he got, he's in really good shape in that movie, mainly because of the fact he had to carry all that heavy, you know, prosthetics and, and the fat suits and stuff, you know, so he had to move around in that. So he had to be in really good shape. And, well, um, takes the potion and he becomes a skinnier version of himself. He's got to look good for that too. It's got to be yes. a marked difference to really sell that side of stuff. Exactly. And then uh, basically it took, Three hours of makeup each day to play Eddie Murphy's makeup. So for each character, it's about three hours. Uh, so he went through that seven times more than the average person. Yeah. So kudos to Eddie Murphy, man. Uh, Men in Black, the Men in Black movies. Now, Rick Baker was uh, brought in by Steven Spielberg. He was an executive producer of this movie. He actually wanted, Steven actually wanted Rick Baker for E.T., but like I said, they went with Carlo Rambaldi instead. But 
Rick Baker would go on to work with Spielberg on Gremlins 2, New Batch, which we'll get to a little bit later. <laughs> uh, Rick Baker provided, you know, the prosthetic and animatronic uh, aliens, many of which were like otherworldly as opposed to looking humanoid and stuff. So like, like one example was the dude with the, uh, he had like a, a head that popped open. There's like a little alien inside it. Yeah. That's all Rick yeah. Baker, man. Like, and you see the little, little alien suffering and stuff. Damn, that's crazy makeup, bro. The animatronics, like that, like, it was fucking impressive, man. Now he, uh, Rick Baker himself described Men in Black as the most complex production he ever did in his career because it required more makeup than all his previous movies put together. Uh, he had to get, he also had to get approval from both the director Barry Sonnenfeld and Steven Spielberg. So uh, Rick Baker said, like, it would be like, Steven said, like, the head on this one is cool, but, you know, Barry likes the body on this one. Like, why don't we just miss and match and do it like that? And then I say, okay, so that, that doesn't make any sense, but, you know, you got to go with what they want. So so he had to deal with that. And it's a massive aliens, too. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, like, a lot of the digital stuff was made by Industrial Light Magic. But the vast majority of the uh, in-camera stuff is Rick Baker himself. It took Rick Baker six hours to to turn uh, Vincent D'Onofrio into that bug with the stretched out face and all that shit. That might actually be my favorite, favorite Vincent film. I, I really, obviously, like everyone's got to love Full Metal Jacket, but so good as the bug in Men in Black. Yeah, he is, actually. And then they actually had silver, they had a silk swaths glued to uh Vincent's face and cheeks to kind of draw back and stretch out his face. So like, yeah. he had to do that for hours and hours on end. He actually constructed uh Bill uh Rick Baker actually constructed a giant bug for the end sequence. Oh, it's supposed right. to be like yeah he's it's supposed to be uh like you know like twenty feet tall but uh it wouldn't be able to move around and fight. So they decided to go with the uh CGI bug. So. Well, you got to do what you got to do to sell that end sequence. That's right, yeah. And uh, Rick Baker also created uh, the makeup effects for the other Men in Black movies, Men in Black 2 and Men in Black 3. And uh, he, liked, he liked the third one because of the fact that the alien monsters in the third one had to have like a retro look from like the 50s movies, like from the B movies. So like they had like space suits and fishbowl helmets and, you know, guys in little suits of rub uh, with uh, ribbed things on it, you know and exposed brains and big bug eyes and stuff. So he liked that kind of shit. I, I can give him that. Oh, got the pipe going. Oh, yeah. You're distinguished, bro. Thank you. You are so distinguished. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next up. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 great. Uh, next up, Watch the Gremlins yeah. 2. Yeah, Gremlins 2, the new batch. Next up. Now, uh, we talked about Gremlins at full length. Again, we have another episode about all about Gremlins. Uh, I think it might have been our second watch along ever. It's our Christmas. It was one of our, no, it wasn't our Christmas episode. It was a little bit before. I think it was our Halloween episode was Gremlins. Yeah, but we uh, called it the worst Christmas present ever. Well, yeah, but yeah, yeah. So we did a whole show dedicated to the first Gremlins in 1984 with a little bit of facts of Gremlins 2. Now, this one, I'm, I'm actually going full in on Gremlins 2. Not fully, but just a good, good number of uh, facts. Now, like I said, in the original movie, the special effects for the Gremlins were done by Chris Wayless, uh, who actually decided to move forward with a, uh, a directing career. Uh, they asked him to come back for Gremlins 2. He said no. He was doing something else. I think he actually he was doing uh, The Fly, too. 
because he did them. He did the creature uh, effects and he directed them. So that was his pursuit. Uh, Say that again. That was the Jeff Goldblum fly, right? No, he did the second fly, the one with Eric Stoltz. Oh, okay. He direct, yeah. Uh, he he did the makeup for the Jeff Goldblum fly, he but he did the makeup. Okay. But he, yeah, but he did the makeup and directed the second one with Eric Stoltz. That sounds like a suicide mission to me, doing the makeup and directing. And directing. Yep. Oof. I don't think he made a movie after that. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's just that, that's how on earth. I mean, look, the Jeff Goldblum fly was fantastic and disturbing and fantastic. I don't know any other adjective for it than that, but yeah, that mm-hmm. second was a little. I mean, whatever. <laughs> Let's stick on. Yeah, Rick. yeah, okay. <laughs> it is cool, but because of the fact that Chris Wade is turning down, Joe Dante, the director, went to Rick Baker, who uh, created the makeup for this movie. Now, initially, Rick Baker was not interested because he saw. Gremlins 2 is too much work, and the fact that he wasn't the creator of these special effects, he's basically just a successor. Uh, the only, the only uh, thing that got him to accept it is the fact that it gave him the opportunity to make the Gremlins and the Mogwai more diverse. So you see in uh, Gremlins 1, the Mogwais pretty much look the same, and the Gremlins pretty much look the same. You know what I'm saying? There's not too much difference between all of them. Whereas in this one, they're all radically different. You know what I'm saying? Like the Mogwai are like different faces and different personalities. Even the Gremlins look different. You know what I'm saying? Like all of them, they got different skin colors. They got different, like, 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 like reptile things on them. Like, yeah, they're a lot more different and a lot more diverse. Yeah. Yeah, and they're bigger. Actually, like, if you look at the Gremlins and Gremlins 2 compared to Gremlins 1, they're much bigger. So, uh, now, in terms of like the first movie, like I said, when. When the when the uh, when the excuse me when the Maguire multiplied, they all resembled pretty much Gizmo except for Stripe who had the little mohawk and shit. Uh, now in this one, the four Gremlins each uh, the four Maguire each before uh, had like different uh, distinct personalities and different physical characteristics. Each of them got a name, even though the names weren't actually used in the movie. They got names in the script. Now there's one Gremlin that basically looked like uh, Edward G. Robinson, who's like real. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they had one grin like that. Then they had a dopey looking one, uh, buck teeth, and like <laughs> they called him Link. Yeah, the, the group, the uh, George, the Edward G. Robinson one was called George, and the other one's called Lenny of Mice and Men. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> then they had one really crazy looking one with the bug eyes, <laughs> like the real crazy one. They called him Daffy. And then the last one, the mean one, was uh, called Mohawk. And he had the nasty eyes and the sharp teeth. And he had the, you know, like the serration on his ears. And he had the bigger mohawk than before. And he was all black. And I was like, you just tell from the time you saw him, this, this is a bad one. This is a really bad one. And uh, they are all different from Gizmo. Gizmo was uh, bigger in the second movie. And he also was able to convey a lot more emotion than the first one. Because like, he was much bigger. And like you see him smiling. You see him like like sad and all this other shit and like yeah, yeah, yeah. Rick, if you have Rick Baker exactly and of course the metamorphosis is even different too uh, whereas uh, the cocoons in the first one look like hard rocks in the second one they look like like soft like slimy like shells almost you know what I'm saying and then yeah and then same thing the, uh, the, the gremlins themselves were much bigger much different much more articulated and then uh, they had the one part where all the gremlins got into the genetics lab and started drinking the experiments, and that made them even more different. 
You know what I'm saying? So they had different like types of gremlins. They had one that's like a bat gremlin. They had a spider gremlin. They had a uh, vegetable gremlin. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the vegetable gremlin. They had uh, what's other? And then of course the one famous one, uh, the female gremlin. Yeah. The girl gremlin with the big lips and the titties and shit and green <laughs> hair. Did I ever yeah. show you that uh, uh, whitest kids I know sketch where they were they were doing the writers' room for Gremlins too? I didn't see the whitest kids I know one. I saw the Key and Peele one. I'm gonna I'm gonna pull one up for that. I, it's pretty freaking hilarious. I know the Key and Peele one too. That one's really funny. Yeah, I'm gonna, I, I, I didn't see the whitest kids I know one, but yeah, the same thing. Different types of gremlins, and he had fun with that. And then he had the the smart gremlin, the brainy gremlin. They had a Phantom of the Opera gremlin, and yeah, they just had they had a lot of fun with this movie. Man. Yeah, you, uh, like it's like, like it actually of the two, uh, Joe Dante himself actually prefers this movie, the second movie, to the first movie because of how much fun they were having. because all the different stuff that Rick Baker did allowed him to really go Looney Tunes, literally, with, with, with the Gremlins and shit. They, like, a lot of the effects that the Gremlins do are like Looney Tunes effects, like the one <laughs> brain gremlin. Like, the brain gremlin, if he drinks the thing, he gets smarter, he has this little transformation, goes down, you hear him, like, you see the shadow flailing around. Like, <laughs> it's, like, it's like Looney Tune effects and shit. <laughs> and he comes up super smart and talking like Tony Randall and shit. But yeah, we had a lot of fun with that shit. Uh, Ed Wood. Ed Wood. Killer movie. Killer movie, man. Another Tim Burton movie with uh, Rick Baker. Now, the Rick Baker's main contribution to the movie is the uh, makeup he did on Martin Landau to make him look like Yellow Lugosi. Yep. And it's fantastic makeup. Very subtle, but really fantastic. It's a fantastic film, and it's about... If you've never seen or you don't know who Ed Wood is, he is widely considered by many in the industry to be the worst director ever. Yeah. Actually made multiple films. Planet Nine, what is that? Plan Nine from Plan Nine from Outer Space. Is that yeah, something thing? like that. What's crazy is he managed to continually convince people. And when you watch the when you watch the movies, you'll see stuff as bad as people knocking over like set pieces and props in the middle of it. And his his refrain was always suspension of disbelief, suspension of disbelief. Don't worry about it. We'll keep shooting. We'll keep shooting. Suspension of disbelief. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah, yeah. worse than some of the bad things you'll catch in like some of the old black exploitation films they make fun of, like Black Dynamite and stuff. Mm-hmm. Ed Wood films. I mean, look, if you're hoping to someday make movies, but you ever feel bad about yourself, watch Ed Wood and then realize if you don't give up, you're going to get to make something. Yeah. Yeah, just keep at it. Just keep going. <laughs> this is a, was the, uh, well, the, the modern equivalent of that would be, what's his name, uh, Tommy Wiseau? Yeah. Yeah. That'd be the bottom equivalent. Just the awful, awful. himself. He's tearing me apart, Lisa. Oh, hi, Mark. <laughs> yeah, oh, hi, Mark. <laughs> I cannot. I cannot. Oh, hi, Mark. Yeah, yeah. Such an awful movie. <laughs> and the thing is, because I got, I got really interested, especially after the disaster artist came out. Nobody can still figure out where the hell Tommy Wiseau got his money. Like, he's just this enigma that somehow has had enough money to go drop $7 million to make the worst movie ever made. <laughs> That's what's ridiculous. It was, it was one of those things that was so bad, it actually kind of got good. Yeah, yeah that happens sometimes. So. Um, next up, The Frighteners. There you go. Remember Rick Baker did the makeup for The Frighteners. 
Um, particularly the judge, the John Aston character, when he had the detached jaw. Yeah. Yeah, that was basically Rick Baker, man. Like he loved that shit. He couldn't do he couldn't do as much makeup on this movie as he wanted to because he was actually committed to the medical professor at the time. So he did a couple things here and there for the fighters. Uh The Grinch Who Stole Christmas with Jim Carrey. Yeah. Uh, what, uh, that's what you need a six thousand square foot studio for. Yes, for Whoville and all that shit. Oh yeah, definitely. Now Rick Baker designed uh, the makeup for this movie, particularly for Jim Carrey and the cast itself. Now uh, the Grinch suit itself was actually made out of yak hair, was dyed green, and sold onto a spandex suit. Now the actual makeup itself took about two and a half hours to apply, uh, and at one point it actually frustrated the shit out of Jim Carrey to the point we actually kicked a hole in the trailer. He was that pissed off. Uh, well, and then if I remember correctly, he'd, he'd actually hired some ex-CIA guys to teach him how to withstand torture because yeah. half, not only getting it on, but keeping it on was apparently mm-hmm. extremely painful. Yeah. And actually on set, they actually assigned a particular uh, makeup artist to Jim, uh, Katsuhiro uh, Zujari, I believe that's how you pronounce it. Um, and he took out, mo- Jim Carrey apparently took out most of his anger on this poor makeup artist. Uh, they said basically they said the makeup artist stuff that basically Jim Carrey was mean to everybody, and at the beginning of the production they couldn't finish. After two weeks, uh, we could uh, only finish three days worth of work because of the shooting schedule. And suddenly, because suddenly he would just disappear, and then when he came back, everything was just ripped apart. We just couldn't shoot anything. Eventually, that makeup artist actually left the uh, production, but Rick Becker actually had to step in, had a discussion with Jim Carrey, very firm discussion. Telling him how important this makeup artist is to production, Jim Carrey agreed to keep his makeup, his uh, anger in check, and the artist came back. So Rebecca will step in. He had, he, if he had to give me a shit, he'll give me a shit, man. Uh, he's so, a consummate professional. By the time he's doing that, he's got 20 years in the business. He's probably running all kinds of different temperaments and everything else. Man, like we said, go back, listen to See You Next Wednesday, get a little bit of what went on with just trying to get through American Werewolf in Paris. Yeah, knows what it is to go through some horrible makeup and what it is for the actors and everybody. Uh, He's the guy. uh, London, not Paris. London, yeah, yeah, yeah. backwards. Don't watch. Don't watch American Werewolf in Paris. No, 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 no. I just went backwards. London. Yeah, Uh, but uh, uh, they actually apparently the total time that it took for Jim Carrey to be in that makeup, he spent ninety-two days in the Grinch makeup altogether, spending two hours in the morning getting it in and an hour getting out every night. And apparently Jim Carrey said he became a Zen master after sitting up in that makeup chair. Like, I mean, um, most of the appliances for the other actors were basically just the noses that were connected to the upper lip and some dentures, like teeth, and maybe some ears and wigs. The Who people, you know, the Whoville people. Uh, the contact lenses that Jim Carrey wore were apparently so uncomfortable he could only wear them for certain times during filming, right? And, uh, like, it was like that's the, that's a common thing with the makeup in terms of like the big, uh, big scleral contacts where they like yeah, cover the whole eye. Exactly, those are horribly uncomfortable. You talk to people who've done like even like uh, like zombie movies stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Hell. Yeah, and like people like Michael Jackson and and all the people said the same thing. Those contacts are just so uncomfortable that you know, like you have to like get to the point where they actually put a solution in it. It feels like Tabasco sauce. And like you just like you just your eyes are burning and you're irritated and you only wear them at a certain amount of time, man. Like it's, it's crazy. Yeah. 
And uh, also, uh, Jim Carrey actually, <laughs> actually, the, the, the makeup apparently was so time-consuming that Jim Carrey actually arranged for packages to be delivered to his dressing room as opposed to his house. He was there that much. So, but yeah, a lot of fun there doing the Grinch. Oh yeah, one people, that, one makeup that a lot of people don't realize: Tropic Thunder. Yeah, that's Rick Baker. Two particular ones. One, two ones in particular. Uh, Robert Downey Jr. in blackface is Rick Baker. Which and I also last time that's ever going to be allowed. Yeah, basically. Yeah, and also Tom Cruise as Les Grossman is yeah. Rick Baker. Yeah. See, that was that was a little bit less for Tom Cruise, obviously. Yeah, uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, one of the re- one of the things that really helped uh, Rick Baker in terms of doing Robert Downey Jr.'s makeup is because of fact all the movies he did with Eddie Murphy and Michael Jackson and darker skinned African Americans, so he knew you know the African American face pretty well. Like, and, he, and then apparently the makeup consisted of a prosthetic nose, uh, lip plant, the bottom lip, hair pieces, and paint that he made to replicate African American skin tones. Um, that's basically what they did. Uh, for Les Grossman, a lot of that, a lot of the suggestions for that was Tom Cruise himself. Uh, Tom Cruise actually uh, suggested Les Grossman as this middle-aged businessman, and that he wanted to do the fat suit. He also wanted to do the large prosthetic hands and the ball cap and all the other shit. And like he wanted to do the whole thing with hairy the, chest. Um, yeah, the hairy chest. And he wanted to do the, you know, the flow rider, you know, the dance, whatever, getting you know, that shit. <laughs> oh, that's huge. That's my favorite Tom Cruise performance, still. Yeah. Uh, my that's my favorite Ben Stiller movie, period. Yeah. It's Tropic Thunder. Yeah. So, like, uh, what's the shit? Uh, Tug Speedman? <laughs> yeah. Tugger Nuts? Here we go. <laughs> what's, this, what's the action movie? Is it Scorcher? Scorcher, yeah. Scorcher 8. Here we go again. Simple Jack? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, here we go again, again. <laughs> well, and then if you if you if you've watched it five or six times, go back and watch it with the commentary because just like Robert yeah. Downey Jr. says in the movie, he doesn't drop character until the DVD commentary. He is in character in the DVD commentary. <laughs> it was great. Honestly, one of the top two best DVD commentaries ever. The only other one that I'd put on the same level is uh, Anchorman, the unedited version. That mm-hmm. one with Will Ferrell and Adam McKay. They spend the first 30 minutes just trying to one-up each other in terms of cursing. It's hilarious. We got to sit down and watch uh, those Roger Moore movies with his commentary. I think they'll beat them. Because right. drunk British-ass uh, Roger Moore. <laughs> Sitting there like, there's me as James Bond. Bond is my name and spying is the name. This is not so much a commentary as it was more of a one-sided conversation. I cannot talk to you and you and cannot talk to me. So I suggest you do as I am doing right now. Sit back, kick off your shoes and have a glass of wine. And like like I said, he does these weird ass like like there's not so much uh, a step by step commentary of the film itself because honestly I do not remember I, a lot of these films I've not seen since the premiere. <laughs> so it's just like things things that come to mind as I watch it. Different people I've worked with, different parts inside of it. As I said, 
Greenland. <laughs> yeah, so and then the, like I said, my favorite one of the is like two. It's two of them that are my favorites. Number one is uh, uh when he does an impression of Herve Villachez. <laughs> from uh, the man with the golden gun. <laughs> He's a uh, we have Herve Villachez. The name must be pain, you mean. With a big British laugh. <laughs> and the second one is uh, a married with children reference. I think I told you about this, but he's no, like, a, he's talking, uh, I did? No, you didn't. Oh, well, he does a, he does a reference to married with children. And, uh, I forgot which one, but he's talking about uh, working with Boris Segal, who was Katie Segal's father. Right. Like, uh, I worked with Boris Segal, which, uh, blah, blah, blah. And his daughter Katie is on the Al Bundy show in America. <laughs> and worst job in the world is a women's shoe salesman. <laughs> <laughs> we gotta watch this shit. It's All right, it's on the list. We gotta, we gotta watch it. Okay, so back to the uh, Reed Baker. Now let's get into another area of his expertise that you know I love: werewolves. Oh yes, all about werewolves. Uh, and Rick Baker, it really, to me, is the dude in Hollywood for werewolves. And then, like, he's done different ones, and they've all been radically different from each other. Same creature, radically different designs. Which first really one is massive creative uh, wealth that he can he can draw from. That's right. The first one, like we said, was American Werewolf in London, nineteen eighty one. Now they had the disagreements, of course, about like uh, John Landis wanted a four-legged hound from hell, whereas Rick Baker wants to be a traditional two-legged werewolf. Uh, but, oh, you know, that's so hard to do. Yeah, I know. But yeah, they, but the director went out, so Rick Baker came up with something. Uh, now, again, we talked about uh, in the previous episode that he was actually working on the howling uh, as this shit was going on, because he decided, you know, uh, John Lance is probably never going to make this movie. I uh, got these makeup effects or whatever for this werewolf stuff, so might as well use it for another movie. But then John Landis calls him, hits him up, it's like, hey, we're doing a werewolf movie. Uh, he's like, well, I'm already doing a werewolf movie. Like, Did you show him the stuff you showed me? Yeah. You motherfucker! Yeah, yeah I've gone into that full conversation in the John Landis movie. That pretty much happened. Rick jumped ship, went to American Werewolf in London, left uh, the howling in the hands of Rob Boutine. That's a whole other story. Uh, but yeah, a lot of the structural like uh, effects that he used in terms of use of ladders and different things he used for American Werewolf as well. Um, and also, uh, like I said, the fun thing that I, I loved about when uh, Rick Baker first met David Norton, who played the title Werewolf, and the first thing he said to him was like, "You're the werewolf?" Like, yeah, I feel sorry for you because <laughs> <laughs> all the shit I'm about to do to you. <laughs> And like they started the makeup process with these molds. They did full body molds of both uh, David Nunn and Griffin Dunn um, because of the fact they had they did the whole thing with the legs and the arms, and the chest and the head and the face. And actually, you see the the chest and face one on the behind the scenes thing of uh, American Werewolf. And also, you also see the hand too. Them casting the hand. Yeah, that was really cool. And they worked on those uh, makeup effects for months and months and months. Funny enough, the makeup, the actual transformation itself is only two minutes long. Months and months of effects for a two minute, very memorable two minute transformation. It was worth it, 100%. Definitely worth it. Now, uh, like I said, uh, the certain, there are certain instances where they just had the werewolf head visible and they just had the werewolf head doing like, different things like that. That was a puppet that was actually puppeteered by Rick Baker. 
like the main the main scenes you see the puppet the puppet werewolf head is like the when he killed Jack on the Moors, you see him beating the shit out of Griffin Bell with the werewolf head. And also when he bites off the uh, the inspector's head and picking on the surface. Both yeah. of those are Rick Beckett. And then there's this great picture where you see the werewolf head biting the dude's head off. And you see, like, off camera, you see Rick Beckett. And, yeah, it is, it's, yeah, it's really, really cool, man. Uh, and also, um, it took five hours to do the makeup for Griffin Bell. Because of all the, de- the decomposing shit that they did for him. And, yeah. Like, it just got worse and worse and yeah, worse. Yeah, I was going to say, makeup, by the time he got to the end of five hours, it might have only started with maybe an hour, but you know, when he's decomposed and that rotting corpse at the end. Yep, exactly. Uh, now, uh, this is another one that we did not talk about last time. And I, I, I used to watch this show back in the day. I didn't realize Rick Baker did the makeup for it. There was a show on Fox called Werewolf. It was actually one, it was actually one of the very first Fox shows. Hmm. Yeah, it uh, was brought. It was one of the original shows on the Fox lineup in its inaugural season in 1987 and 1988. And basically, the whole premise of the show was it had this drifter named Eric Core who got bit by a werewolf, and now is spending his life, you know, like wandering the earth trying to find the originator of his bloodline so he can kill him. Uh, and it's basically like the Incredible Hulk TV show. It was like him going from place to place, you know, meeting new people, you know what I'm saying, getting into, an, getting into adventures, getting jobs. And then, of course, shit would happen. Um, something happens. He turns into a werewolf. And then, and then the funny thing about it is the werewolf, while it was scared the shit out of everybody, it actually fixed whatever problem that the person was having at the time. This werewolf came, he disappeared, and then he moves on to the next town. Incredible whole like a werewolf. <laughs> Or more accurately, like the fugitive. Okay. All right. Yeah, I'll give you that one. Yeah, the fugitive. So, uh, but yeah, but the thing about it is, the werewolf in that show was this giant, like, uh, bipedal werewolf. But it looked like it looked almost identical to the werewolf from The Howling, the uh, the Eddie Quist werewolf. You know what I'm saying? And like, uh, but the and then of course the makeup effects that they used for each show was Rick Baker, and he did all the. Uh, crazy stuff with that, and then like I said, this is on the TV show. You know what I'm saying? So like, they they actually considered the makeup effects on Werewolf to be ahead of its time. And well, I, say, I mean, Fox when they were first starting out, they were spending money on content like Netflix does now. Yeah, and they actually had a dope Werewolf show. Yeah, uh, but it's it's still crazy. Actually, the the best makeup to me, well, one of the best makeups was actually they had a bad guy in there, there, and there uh uh, Skornzinski, who basically would peel his skin off to reveal the werewolf underneath. This is 1988, so yeah. you didn't really see that. Yeah. So that's, that's pretty cool. Uh, and then we talked about this last time during the Jack Nicholson episode, Wolf. Uh, <laughs> big favorite of mine. Uh, of course, Rick Baker did the makeup for that. Uh, and then, of course, he was inspired by the Jack Pierce makeup from Werewolf of London, the very first werewolf, major Hollywood werewolf movie. Uh, starring Henry Hull, uh, and basically the whole get down was it was much more subtle than the traditional werewolf. They had the the hair appliances, they had ears and the eyes and the teeth and the makeup and shit like that, and the claws and the hands. But there wasn't like a full on like body morph and transformation. It just added shit to the person's face. It's pretty chill. So, uh, but not so much shit that it was distracting from the person's you know emotionality. You can still see it was Jack Nicholson or. James Spader underneath that. You know what I'm saying? So, 
but really cool makeup, man. I really love that. And the last one he did that he won the Academy Award for, which was actually a favorite of mine too, The Wolfman in 2010. The overall movie itself, kind of a bore, but uh, the actual werewolf parts themselves are fantastic. He did a fantastic job with that. Well, so <laughs> you got to give got to give Rick credit, and everything else is the director and editor's fault. Yeah, it was a uh, uh, Joe Johnston. He directed. Yeah, so. can't all be they can't all be winners. No, no, they can't. But like I said, still the makeup effects and the Wolfman are fantastic. Oscar worthy, actually. So he created Rick Baker created the makeup effects for the Wolfman, and when he first heard that Universal was remaking the movie, he eagerly pursued it, which he does not do. Like most of the, most of the, most of the jobs he gets are stuff that's offered to him. Whereas this case, he's like, hey, I don't have an agent or whatever. Just let the powers that be know that Rick Baker wants to do the Wolfman. You know what I'm saying? He felt like he had to do it because of fact he loved Jack Pierce, who did the makeup for the original one. And he's like, you know what? I got to do my own version of the Wolfman. I have to. Well, I mean, it's a fitting culmination of his career, considering you know Jack was was his inspiration. Yeah, and so he's going to do his own version of Jack Pearson's makeup, which I think is so cool. He said, uh, like in terms of like when they picked Benicio del Toro uh, to be the Wolfman, it's like it wasn't that difficult to make Benicio the Wolfman because Benicio was already a really hairy dude, so <laughs> not that difficult. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and like Rick Becker actually said, going from Benicio to Benicio as the Wolfman was an extreme difference. Uh, like when I did American World from London, we went from this naked man to this four-legged hound from hell, and we had a lot of room to go for in terms of the transformation and doing these really extreme things. Real extreme things. David Norton basically had no body hair, whereas Benicio del Toro is so hairy that making him up as the werewolf or the Wolfman was extremely easy. I, I, I basically say Benicio was basically the Wolfman. I just put in, you know, bigger hair and more teeth. It's was. Yeah, yeah. And he also the look of the uh, costuming for the werewolf, which Britt uh, Baker actually had a little bit of a hand in, was based on uh, the Oliver Reed werewolf in Curse of the Werewolf, the Hammer Werewolf. So, like, you need, the noticeable thing is that he's big werewolf with the open shirt open and shit. Like, that's the Oliver Reed. Book. So, uh, yeah, you can see that very clearly. There's an influence on that. Um, also, uh, Rick Baker based again based design on Jack Pierce's work in the Wolfman, but also on wolves and apes and books, and also looked at old pictures of his dog Bosco, which was used as the basis for the werewolf in American Werewolf in London too. Yeah, it was that uh, <laughs> Irish hound, right? Keys hound. Keys hound. Yeah, Keys hound. Yeah, but uh, yeah, that was basically what he did with that. Uh, the makeup itself took three hours to apply, one hour to remove. Uh, they added new pieces of latex makeup and loose hair to Benicio del Toro's face daily, uh, including several dentures and, make and wigs that were created, even though some were damaged. Uh, they said that Rick Baker knew that the transformation itself would be likely computer generated, which disappointed him because he wanted to be involved in terms of ladders and all this stuff, whatever. He actually felt like the, the animated one was unrealistic looking so um are you telling me that cgi can look like cartoons right yeah <laughs> where's the evidence oh, uh the, apparently the only makeup effect in the movie that Rick Baker was not involved in was the there was a feral mountain boy the the, the the mountain boy that bit uh the anthony hopkins character that started all this shit 
Right. Um, that was the time they Let's see what else here. Oh, yada, yada, yada. Now, this is, uh, again, the second werewolf um, movie that Rick Baker won the Academy Award for. The first one was American Werewolf in London. And then is also his last Academy Award to date. He's the wolf fan. So. Tell somebody, give him something else, makes him want to jump out of retirement. Yeah, man. <laughs> now, in the culmination thing here, man, um, I've always loved... Rick Baker's uh, work in terms of different movies. I've always felt it was the best. Um, the only person that comes close to me in terms of just like makeups that I love for different movies would be Stan Winston. And Stan Winston did The Terminator, Predator, uh, The Aliens from Alien, the Alien movies. The He did a lot of the dinosaurs from Jurassic Park. Um, I'm trying to think. He did, the, he did the original design of, uh, he did Iron Man 1. Yeah, the Iron Man suit that we know was Stan Winston. So yeah, I mean, I I, I don't know anyone else that's on the same level. Yeah. So, uh, and then also right after that would be Rob Boutin, The Howling, The Thing, RoboCop. Yeah. Yeah, which we love. Yeah, but I still, <laughs> I still think I still think he's he's a step down, and that's not that's not to say that's not to take anything away from him, but it's rather to make sure that. You know, we're giving Rick Baker his due. Yeah, Rick Baker is the man. And like I said, if you have not checked out his Instagram, please do. The Rick Baker on Instagram. Like I said, he does makeups all the time. I think one of the highlights that he does every year uh, is his family. He'll make up his whole family uh, for Halloween. And they always you see, like, uh, kids from around the neighborhood coming to the Rick Baker house because they basically put on the show. Oh, you know yeah. What I'm saying? Yeah, and I saw one that they did for the strain at the house. I was like, I, I thought that was didn't they? Fire. Didn't they do a bunch of the Jokers a couple years ago? Yeah, didn't all of them, all the the him, his wife, and his two daughters were each a version of the Joker. Yeah, I mean, it was it was killer. Yeah, it was man. Like, I, I love one of the daughters was like the Heath Ledger Joker. Another daughter was like the uh, the, the classic Joker. The uh, one his wife was like. Uh, Freaking like uh, it's a different parts of Joker. I mean, I remember one of them was like the most recent stretchy face Joker, where like the Joker cut off his face and then reattached his face in the mask. That kind of Joker. It did that. Wow. I didn't see that one. Back. Awesome. Yeah, it, it was pretty cool, man. Uh, and then another one they did a Twilight Zone one where they did the plastic surgeon thing, where the wife was like the plastic surgeon person, but like all the doctors had to fucked away, like lift her face and shit. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, saying yeah, it was pretty cool, man. Yeah, he always goes all out, man. He, he's always doing like old, showing like old pictures of old makeup effects and him making up like Michael Jackson and him making up like Eddie Murphy or, or just making up himself as like tests for different movies that eventually, you know, will become huge hits and shit. But it's like if you're a fan of just movie monstery, a uh, movie makeup and movie like mastery in terms of like makeup and in terms of like monstery. I like monstery. We should make that a word. You should coin that. Movie monstery. <laughs> I agree with that. Yeah. If you, if you if you want some dope movie monstery, check out Ray Baker's Instagram. We can't we can't uh recommend it enough, man. Nah, that's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, you got anything else to add? I mean, not to this one. It's it's kind of hard, you know. Once we get into Rick Baker and the uh, the werewolf side of things, you like the king. <laughs> I don't have too much more to add. You didn't miss anything. 
I love me some werewolves, man. It's my thing. Yeah. But like I said, we really hope you guys have enjoyed this uh, groundbreaking new episode of Dropping Their Culture with Jamie and AJ because this is the first time we've done the video. Uh, this is a, like I said, this is an experiment. This is the first, uh, mainly out of necessity. Uh, we did it this way. Uh, but in reality, uh, in reality, it's probably the first of what will be a minimum of three, <laughs> considering what we're right. in the city of LA right now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, from looks of it, we're probably gonna be doing a couple of episodes like this. Uh, last I heard, the estimate was going as far as May first. Uh, I mean, officially, Los Angeles said April nineteenth was the last one that I heard that was made official. But I've heard him. I've heard him projecting out to May. I've heard some people projecting out to June. So we'll see how it goes. Hopefully, it doesn't go that long. Because, uh, well, like most entertainment industry right now, uh, I'm yeah. furloughed, so <laughs> it'd be better yeah, like, to work. And then um, my thing is, like I said, I was, I was actually posted this on my Facebook. Um, I'm on social media just like everybody else, and I'm loving watching all these videos of different people stuck in their house, going through fucking cabin fever because they have nothing better to do, and they, they're making up different shit. They try to be trying to do trying to be creative in order to keep themselves from going insane, and it's uh it's crazy to watch. And I'm, shit, we're, we're we're among them. We're doing this right now. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, but to be fair, we. Okay, I, I give you the only difference was we got to sit next to each other and we did it. Yeah, yeah. No. All right, so that has been uh, that's been this episode of Dropping That Culture with JD and AJ. We'll figure out what our next episode is going to be, and uh, we'll join you guys next time. Uh, this has been Dropping That Culture with JD and AJ. We'll catch you next time. Later. Dropping That Culture. Dropping That Culture. Dropping That Culture. Driving that coast. 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 Driving that coast.